Hello, everybody. Welcome to Relationship Renovation Podcast. I'm Tara Kerwin. And I am EJ Kerwin. And as always, we're so grateful to be here. And today, I think for both of us, EJ, it's just a really special day because we have a very special guest. Yeah. So so today we have a guest. His name is Lodro Rinsler. He is an author. He's written uh, seven books. He's a meditation teacher. Uh, he's a husband. He's a, he's a dad. His most recent book is Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. Lodro, welcome to Relationship Renovation. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, we, we, uh, we found you. Your, your most recent book is, is about anxiety, and it's certainly been something in this last year that oh we've been, yeah. been seeing our clients struggle with a lot. But, you know, f- first of all, if you could, if you don't mind, just give us a little bit of background. Just tell us about yourself, your, uh, your history. Sure. So I was raised in a Buddhist household. My parents started practicing Buddhism and meditation um, many years before I came around. So it was always just in the air. And the practice itself, you know, I, I started meditating when I was, I guess, I'm doing some math here, six years old. <laughs> wow. So I was very young and it was never forced upon me in any way. It was really one of these situations where it was just around enough that I picked up on it and people said, oh, you know, like, what does that mean to you? And I'd say, oh, I just follow my breathing. Wow. And when I get distracted, I come back and people were like, oh, yeah, that's basically it. Um, and it's true. You know, it's a very simple practice. It's not particularly easy because many of us are pulled away by all sorts of thoughts, as you mentioned, particularly anxious ones. But, you know, it is a simple practice. So I started at a young age and I started doing retreats, uh, weekend retreats when I was 11 and then longer retreats like a month and more around 17. And when I went off to university, I started a little meditation group, invited a bunch of people over thinking that, of course, everyone knew how to meditate. And what a wake up call. No one did. And they basically were (laughs) like, yeah, why aren't you teaching us? And uh, I didn't feel comfortable with that, so I, I brought in a bunch of other teachers who got sick of the commute, and basically at that point, probably more because of being sick of the commute than any aptitude they sensed in me, but they did say, you should go do a teacher training, and you've done the qualification, so I went off and did that, and I started teaching meditation when I was 18 years old. Wow. So That's amazing. I'm 38 now. I've been doing it a while. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, along the way, I've served as the director for Buddhist nonprofit, started my own nonprofit ran a network of meditation studios in New York City called Mindful. And then, of course, as you mentioned, you know, done a number of books. Basically, how do we apply meditation? How do we learn it? Sure. But how do we then apply it to our day-to-day life so that we can live more relaxed and less anxious lives overall? Yeah. I mean, just tell me, what what, what kept you on the path of, of teaching it? You know, not just being a practitioner, but, you know, kind of dedicating your life, you know, dedicating yourself as a professional to, to teaching people? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's an interesting one in that when I started teaching meditation, it was never considered something that you could do as a career. It was just sort of something that I was doing to the best of my ability while I was managing other things, as I mentioned, like, you know, serving as the executive director of a nonprofit and things like that. And it gradually, um, the popularity, I would say, in terms of meditation the last 20 years has been, has just boomed. So, you know, it's, it mm-hmm. does seem bizarre to me. I mean, I love teaching meditation to answer your question. It's not like it was ever like a career choice. It's just something that I love to do. And then at some point people said, you know, we want to do more with you. And it gradually spiraled into books and programs and things like that, uh, in response to people sort of seeking these things. Wow. But 
I also grew up reading X-Men comics, and thus far no one has asked me to come to their company and teach them about X-Men, but it would be about as bizarre as what was currently happening, so who knows, maybe it'll happen. (laughs) Um, So it's sort of like that. It's just, I don't want to say I fell backwards into it, but it was something that I'd always been doing and passionate about doing because I know how much it helps people, and then gradually it became the entirety of what I do. I mean, so so tell me, I mean, what are sort of the core things that, that you find, you know, because, you know, our podcast is about individual, it's about couple wellness, it's about uh, people trying to become their best selves together. We want to bring people on that that have tools that, that support people in that process. You know, what do you find are the, are the sort of repeating messages that you're bringing to people that support them in wellness? I think one of the more recent things I've been thinking about is just how many people out there feel overwhelmed by their circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about anxiety briefly. You know, I, I think that's a great example of like, actually, I'm an anxious person. We identify in that way. And that's actually not very helpful. Um, I think you two will appreciate that. I had a meditation student go to um, her doctor and she came back to me and she's like, listen, I, uh, I've been diagnosed. I said, oh, no. OK, what's happening? And she said, well, uh, he says that I'm I'm always going to be anxious for the rest of my life. And I said, <laughs> I almost, I felt bad laughing, but I was like, who gets to determine that? Right. She's like, well, you know, like I've got a lot of anxiety. And I, I was like, that's, it's like the worst bedside manner I've ever heard. Because obviously we are not inherently anxious. Like when you meet a child, that child is not just like born anxious, wondering if they're going to get home on time. Like that's just not how that works. We learn these things, and that also means that we can unlearn these things. And even in a short conversation with that meditation student, she was like, oh, yeah, like she remembered. There have been many times that I've been able to notice the anxious thoughts pulling me out of the present moment, acknowledge them, and come back Mm -hmm. as a result of meditation and having trained my mind in that direction. So it really is, like I guess to answer your question more directly, the fact that the mind is trainable, that it's workable, that we can actually create new neural pathways that actually allow us to be more present and to be less held by stress, and that we can continuously make choices, good choices, to bring ourselves more into the current situation where we can find some sense of contentment and joy. And it's just a little bit of mind training that gets us to that point where we don't have to over-identify and say, this is just how I am. Exactly. You know, I, I like that reframe too, because I work with a lot of couples who experience anxiety disorders, and I'm not one on labeling from the DSM-5 by any means, but I always say, you know, all of us have anxiety and and we all experience it differently. And as long as we don't let it hijack us where it's kind of producing this fear response and we can reframe it, restructure it in this way of like, wow, my anxiety is actually here for a reason, you know, but how do I make choices around feeling empowered in it instead of, again, kind of making it us feel hijacked, trapped, scared, fearful? Yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I think that's beautifully put because obviously some people have anxiety disorders and things like that, which is a little bit different than just saying, I'm an anxious person, identifying as sure. such. But even then, it's like we can work with the mind to lessen the hold that anxiety has on us. We all can do that. That's something we all have the ability to do. It does take a little bit of work, though, as you know. I mean, working with couples, it's that over-identification of like, well, this is just the way things are because that's how we have trained the mind to date. It can be really paralyzing for people. And to actually even just start off a conversation by saying, Mm -hmm. you know, there is another way of doing this can actually be really liberating. 
I mean, really, really early in my life, I had a teacher that I worked with that helped me understand why having a, a mindfulness practice was important. And the way he stated it was really mindfulness meditation is about directing your mind where you choose to direct it instead of letting it I make the yeah. decision for you. And and why I think it was really important for us to bring you on today and, and talk about you know, some of the tools and some of the ways in which you work with people is that when we made our program that we work with couples, we had this whole section that we still have around mindfulness in your relationship because the changes we ask couples to make, to communicate in more effective ways, to be aware of when you're triggered, to notice your feelings and find healthy ways to express them, sort of the underlying thing is like, well, if you're not mindful, if you're not aware that you're going in those directions, how in the world can you change the way in which you react with your partner? But yet what we find, and, and maybe you can help us with this, Lodro, is like, we find people are, are very resistant intimidated. To, and, and intimidated and they've had negative experiences with meditation, with mindfulness. You know, why do you think that is? Like, why is it so hard to introduce um, these type of interventions and and that type of work to somebody. Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm gonna <laughs> go back 2,600 years to start. <laughs> where we have so when we talk about mindfulness, we are talking about a style. Well, let's do some definitions here. The common definition of mindfulness in the West is that we are present to what is currently occurring without judgment meaning that I could very well be present while I am with my partner and deeply listening to them and I'm just 100% there with them, which is a great form of generosity and compassion. And that's when I drift off and start thinking, oh, you know what I need to do later? I come back and I'm present with them again. That is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But often the way that we train in it through meditation is known as mindfulness meditation where we're with something simple like the breath. And it's the same process where we start breathing well, we don't start breathing. We are sitting here breathing right now, even <laughs> as you're listening, you know, yeah. but you were breathing and then we Become notice the breath. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. And then we drift off and we come back and we just do that over and over again to retrain the mind that we don't have to drift off. We can be present. But this goes back to the Buddha 2,600 years ago who sat under a tree and was able to wake up in a giant way as a result of doing this practice. So if it worked for him in terms of opening his mind and heart in an incredible way, it can work for us. But to answer your question, what happened then? He said, okay, I don't know if anyone's going to understand these teachings that I'm going to be able to offer. Mm. He gets up and he has this one begging bowl and he goes to the nearby river to renounce his worldly possessions and just devote himself to teaching at this point. He throws it in and it said, the sort of legend of it all goes, that the bowl itself didn't go downstream. It literally went up against the current. And to the Buddha, this meant, oh, everything I teach from now on is going to go against the stream of society. And here we are 2,600 years later, and we're talking about, you know, if people were to practice this, this meditation, taking 10, 15, 20 minutes out of your day to sit there and do nothing. And everyone has been so conditioned to being so effing productive all the time. Yeah. And, you know, like, that's just who is against the stream of society to this day. Yeah, that's so like interesting. We always have to do yeah. more, be more, create more. The mm -hmm. idea of doing nothing to relax to let the body relax is so antithetical to so many people the last thing i'll say about this is you know particularly when i ran mindful the network of meditation studios in the city we would have people in all day and they would be like why am i falling asleep in meditation and the more i looked at it the more i'm like 
you are holding your body in a constant state of tension. You're running from here to there. Mm -hmm. You just came off the subway where your shoulders were up by your ears because it was totally crammed. You know, like the idea of relaxing your body, probably the only time you do that in the course of your day is when you get in bed and go to sleep. So the mind probably just automatically goes, oh, it's bedtime because we're actually starting to relax and you pass out. So it's like, I just saw all these people who had no ability to relax because they never gave themselves time and space to do so. And I think that is it's the cultural part of it. We're actually learning to relax. Yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's ever been harder to to take on these practices than it is now because mm -hmm. especially in sort of our Western sort of, you know, go, 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 capitalistic. You gotta if you rest, the world's gonna pass you by. And with these like, you know, little devices that we hold on that that are constantly grabbing our attention and yanking it in different directions. It's to, you're right. I mean, the, the idea of sitting down and and settling it not only is is like uncomfortable. It almost feels like you're doing something wrong or indulgent. You know that you that, that selfish. Yeah, mm -hmm. that you're being selfish. It's so interesting because I, I mean, I'm a big mindfulness teacher in my sessions, and when people start to kind of spin out a little or go into a downward spiral, I'm always grounding them and using the breath. And really, it only takes about two minutes to shift back into presence. So when couples come in, right, they have deprioritized their relationship and made everything else more important. And when I'm starting to kind of do psychoeducation or talk about mindfulness, it's the same thing. They've deprioritized their own wellness, their own self-care. And I said, in order to really prioritize your relationship, you're going to have to use some of these techniques to get to really improve your self-care because unless you make the decision to prioritize wellness for you individually, you will not sustain growth as a couple. And so really kind of like the foundation for our work is just helping couples prioritize both their relationship and their own individual self-care. I love that. And that's kind of what's been really successful, I think. Yeah. I mean, it actually, it's, it's so interesting hearing that, you know, and when you first started talking about it, I thought, God, you know, how sad that so many people are doing that. And then I started thinking, well, I've done that before. You know, I mentioned, you know, that I started this network of meditation studios back in the day called Mindful and, you know, starting a brick and mortar business in New York City, even though it was a meditation business, was so stressful. You know, it's like, Absolutely. how do we make rent every month? How do we get everyone in the door? All these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. There's always something going wrong. And um, I remember my wife, well, at that point, it was my girlfriend, um, turning to me and saying, you know, I realized at this point, like, I'm not the number one priority right now. The business is. And I was like, no, 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 you are. And then I, she was like, no, I'm not. And I stepped back and I looked at it. I was like, yeah, actually, at this point in time, everything that I have mm -hmm. is going into this business. And I was like, okay, this is sustainable for a month. That's as long as I'm giving this. Mm -hmm. And then I need to actually step back and evaluate because long-term, who knows where business is going, but I obviously did not want to deprioritize my relationship. So it was, a it was actually a really like good come to Jesus moment for us where she sort of was like, I know where I am right now. And I, me, and I had to say, okay, and I don't want it to be that way. Yeah. And I actually need to make other changes in order to prioritize all the things you just said, including my own wellness, including time together, all of those sorts of things. And the business yeah. did fine regardless. Yeah, just that trust that it will be okay. <laughs> yeah. It will be okay. You don't have to be there for everything. Yeah. 
Can I ask you a question, Lodro? Um, so back in the day, I used to be an eating disorder specialist, and I was working at this intensive outpatient program, and I did a wellness group, like a three-hour wellness group for women suffering with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. And so it was pretty intense, and I, I would always start with and then end with meditation, whether it was 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You know, I would start kind of small and try to build up. And what I noticed, so a lot of women that struggle with eating disorders have a very uh, low sense of self, insecurity, high levels of anxiety. And we would kind of process what their meditation experience was like, and they would beat themselves up like, oh, I just couldn't stop the intrusive thoughts. And I couldn't stop. I mean, they just had this idea of perfectionism with meditation. And I tried really hard, like you guys, it's all about what happens for you. There's no right way or wrong way. It's all about just kind of recognizing what's happening, bring yourself. But I I remember like it was so profound. Like I didn't realize that some people struggle because they had this idea of meditation that it needs to be this perfect thing where they reach nirvana and no intrusive thoughts are happening whatsoever. Like how do you talk to people about that if that if that kind of essence or energy is happening? So it's a really interesting question. And I think it's um, indicative that something larger, which is that many of us walk around. My friend, uh, hopefully it's okay if I use this word on the show. My friend has a great term that she used in a book that we wrote together called How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. Um, and her name is Megan Watterson. Mm-hmm. And she has a term in the book where she calls it inner bitch radio, <laughs> where it is this little voice inside of us that's like, you jerk, why are you like this? Why are you always doing this? Yeah. I can't believe you said that thing at the party. Everyone still remembers it three days later. You should keep beating yourself up over it. It's like that little radio station mm-hmm. that we have become addicted to, you know, in some some way that mm-hmm. uh, some people will come home and turn on the television. It's just always on in the background. It's like that noise only internally. And meditation really goes a long way in terms of helping with that. And I'll come back to how in a moment, but the voice, that little voice, that radio, if it's been playing everywhere else, it's no surprise to me that it would show up in your meditation because you sit down and you have thoughts and you say, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Everyone else is doing it right. They're not fidgeting. I noticed I fidgeted. Every, you know, It's like there's some sense of I'm not good enough. I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And it's even playing out here. So if we have that tendency, I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is like there's not a lot to do other than to keep going with meditation. But normalizing the experience is really helpful. And I, I just want to say for anyone who's listening, who's tried meditation or is starting to try meditation, if you have thoughts, that's the most normal thing in the world. And it would be weird if you didn't. It would be like sitting down and saying, oh, I can't believe my heart is beating. That's just what the heart does. <laughs> in the same way, this yeah. is what the mind does. It generates thoughts all day long. It is going to happen. It is not bad or wrong. Mm-hmm. Having taught as long as I have, one of the painful parts is having to go through this like re-education process with everyone and basically be like, no, thoughts are going to happen. I don't know who told you otherwise. It's just the way it is. So that's hard. But then the meditation. So I mentioned twice now that I will say, how does meditation help? We're sitting there. We notice a thought come up and we might initially be like, oh, my God, we're bad at this. The encouragement I often give people is to treat ourselves with unconditional friendliness. Mm-hmm. to just really just very gently notice it just gently come back to the breath start fresh another time another thought comes up we gently acknowledge it we come back in this way we are training not just in being present 
although we are, but we are also training in being kinder to ourselves yes. <laughs> every time we drift off. And we are creating neural pathways that are actually allowing us to be kinder, not just more present. It's both. And that can really help with that little uh, inner bitch radio voice. I like inner bitch radio. Tell Megan I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feel free. Yeah, I mean, I think just that, you know, what you're talking about is is just becoming more and more aware of what's happening in your mind. And I think people are startled by how much they're unaware of how their own thoughts are affecting them. And then, you know, kind of always, you know, here we want to bring this back to relationship is that I know, you know, just, just for instance, um, there've been times where Tara sees something in me that I'm not seeing and I'm, I'm not aware of. And then she tells me it and I'm like, no, that's not happening. And then I think through my mindfulness practice, like I've developed some ways to, to become more aware and when I use that tool in my normal life and I'm start to realize like, oh, wait a minute, she's saying I'm being judgmental. She's saying that I'm, you know, I have this look on my face and that I have this affect that I'm not owning. My mindfulness practice gives me the ability to be like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, you know what? There is a tone or there is something subtle I'm not picking up on that that is affecting our relationship. And you know, I, I just think that, you know, I guess my point is that there's so much that we aren't aware of that's happening in our own head. And if we don't have some sort of practice that helps us raise that up, it starts affecting our relationship in, in significant ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, this is why I love working with people who are 20s, younger, because it's like we have decades and decades of ingrained behavior and the less decades we have of that, the easier it is to actually start to undo some of the things that have not been serving us. Right. Um, that said, anyone can start at any time and it's still of benefit, but it is a lot easier the younger we are to, the less ingrained some of the, the stories that we've told ourselves in the past, maybe. Yeah. So, so from your perspective, why would a couple that's sitting out there listening today or a partner, one partner, What's their pitch to their partner? What's what's your pitch to them of like, hey, this is why you should go out and, and start a mindfulness practice, or this is why you should pick up my book and, and check out some of the tools that I can teach you. Like, w what does a couple have to benefit from it? Sure, um, and I, I might be misinterpreting, but uh, uh, part of the question. But I do want to nip it in the bud that I'm I'm very much in the school that like no one should convert anyone to any of this stuff. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and how was the best way people like parents in particular, like what's the best way to get my kid to meditate? The best way for you to get your kid to meditate is for you to meditate. And they actually say, wow, this really works. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They want to do it. Yeah. And I would say the same thing would go for a partner, right? Like the mm -hmm. more that we're actually, like if someone's sitting there and be like, oh, my partner needs to meditate, like you need to meditate. And then they might actually <laughs> be like, yeah, this yeah. is great. I want to be like that. And then they do it too. It's like, I like the that. easiest and most important <laughs> But, uh, you know, why should anyone meditate in general? I, I mean, these days there's so much research, right? Like there's so much science saying if you meditate a little bit every day over a period of just like six, eight weeks, we start to see increased gray matter in the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. We see more um, activity in the ACC, in the brain. We have all of these wonderful things that then translate to increased creativity, better sleep, boosted immune system, you know, more, you become more effective, more productive. And all of this sort of, in all these studies, they mentioned stress reduction. I sort of think that's where it all, that's the umbrella term for everything here. Because if I am not held in a state of stress, yeah, I'm going to sleep better. 
my body's going to have more ability to repair itself. I'm going to have to have more space for creativity if I'm not freaking out about whatever's stressing me out. Like it's also stress reduction. So there is a bit of a cure-all nature to this, but I, I do think that, you know, most of us, in my mind, there's sort of a bar graph happening where it's like 90% in one bar is saying like, this is the amount of time we spent lost in anxiety and then 10% were actually mm-hmm. present. And then the more we meditate, it just starts to invert those so that we're actually more present and more able to enjoy the uh, simplicity and the joys of our day mm-hmm. and less time held in a state of what if this happens, what if that happens? And that's really what this new book is about. Take back your mind. You know, it's really just both yes, meditation, but also on the spot techniques that we can apply in our day to day life to catch ourselves when we start to spiral into that anxiety form mm-hmm. and say, can I come back to this present moment? Can, is there something here I can enjoy? Can I calm the body and just take a gap from these stories I'm telling myself? Mm-hmm. And from there, we might actually be able to make better decisions. I always um, tell my couples or individuals I'm working with, they're like, oh, you don't have time to meditate. I'm like, oh, I get that. I'm the same way. Like, I'll see EJ every morning at five in the morning sitting on his yoga mat. I'm like, dang, I wish I could do that. But I've <laughs> got to pack the kids' lunch and I got to do this and I got to do that. But what I do, and I, I always encourage this, especially for people who are kind of new to it. I'm like, when you're in the shower, you can't be anywhere else. You can't be at work. You can't be in the car. You can't be in the kitchen making lunches. I said, practice there. Practice what the smell of the shampoo is like or the water on your body. And so I kind of do my meditation practice, if you will, every morning in the shower because it's where I don't have to be anywhere else. And people are like, oh yeah, because usually when you're in the shower, you're like, oh my God, I have to hurry up. I have to get to work. I have to blah, 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 blah. And so I, I found that that has been helpful for many people that I've worked with to just start it in the shower because there is nowhere else you can be. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, and I think that there's also, you know, that element of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. So mindfulness, there are many opportunities throughout our day mm-hmm. that we can learn to become mindful, to feel the hot water on our skin or to taste the water in uh, our mm-hmm. you know glass or whatever it is that we're doing in that moment. And then I think the beauty of mindfulness meditation is that it actually, just carving out this little bit of time, allows us to do all of that much more skillfully and much more fluidly. It doesn't feel like it's forced because we've been training the mind and mindfulness through the formal meditation. And just like, I think it was like one of our podcasts that came out with a couple that we worked with a few years ago and, you know, just significant trust issues due to infidelity and a lot of grief. And the one thing that was so powerful in their healing and they're stronger than they've ever been is they would meditate together every single night. They still do it, you know, and, and she she said, oh, I fall asleep when we do it, and, but that's okay. It like really helped them heal because there was so much destruction and fear. And again, it was powerful. And now they, you know, they take their kids to like breathing yoga retreats. And it's really cool to see how their mindfulness practice helped them heal through a lot of complex issues and they are stronger than they've ever been. And yeah, just, oh, it's profound. It really is. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. So, so let's, um, yeah, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about this, uh, you know, about the book that you just released earlier this year. Could you tell us, I mean, what inspired you to write it and what's the message you're trying to get, a get to people in this book? Yeah. I mean, I am someone who has worked with anxiety throughout my life. 
And it took me 10,000 tools above and beyond just meditation to actually really get a handle on it. So, you know, at this point in my life, I, having done all these other books, I noticed that I am not alone. And I think something you said earlier is really quite profound in that there's so many people out there struggling with anxiety right now, and they think that it's uncommon or that they are alone. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. It's just about everyone I know has some form of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it, if we're all doing this and all feeling this way, why is no one talking about it? And I feel like a lot of the books I end up doing end up being like, well, I'm not seeing this conversation happening somewhere, so I'll start it. And that's, you know, dates back to the Buddha walks into a bar when I was in my 20s and figuring out how to apply meditation and Buddhism to living a life that would involved going out and dating and all of these things. And all the way up to the book that preceded this one around heartbreak and, you know, actually all the lessons that we mm-hmm. kind of learned from heartbreak and how to help manage it and work with some of the many manifestations of it. But for this, you know, around anxiety, we are living in deeply anxious times. And as you mentioned earlier, it's only become more so with the advent of every type of, you know, cell phone that will give you not only reminders about the news, but also keep you in constant touch with your work and also dot, you know, keep you on social media, dot, dot, dot. Like there's 10,000 things that will bring us into a stress response mode these days. You know, it's hard for most people find it socially acceptable to like be in bed and answering emails and things like that. And that's not what we were meant to be doing mm-hmm. until all hours of the night. Um, yeah. Then we're surprised that we can't sleep. Anyway, I can go on and on about this, but you know, my go-to example is that when my father was alive, that he would come home from work. And if there was an emergency, they would have to call him on the landline at home mm-hmm. and disturb his night. And then he would probably have to go in if something really bad was happening. Um, these days, there is no sense of like, I come home at five and then I'm done for the day. Mm-hmm. It's just constant. It's constant yeah. We are, you know, texts, emails, phone calls. We're constantly reachable, constantly on call for many, many minor emergencies, things that are urgent but not important. And the um, result is that we're basically, I'm just seeing so many people held in a state of stress at all times. So, I mean, the idea around this book is if we aren't having this conversation yet, we ought to be having it because Mm -hmm. we need to actually address some of the things that bring us into that state and how to walk away from it. You know, there are chapters, for example, based on what I just said, on how do we set boundaries? How do we simplify our life? How do we make simple changes that feel in line with our who we want to be and how we want to live not necessarily like here's the 10 things you need to do but like actually contemplating for yourself what does it mean to set up boundaries around those sorts of things and as i mentioned before you know i I think the meditation practice itself is really helpful in acknowledging the stories and letting them go so we can come back into the present moment and enjoy it but then there's as i said lots of on the spot techniques Mm -hmm. taking three deep breaths in through the nose out through the mouth to calm the nervous system when we feel particularly held by stories contemplating what we are grateful for as opposed to just letting our day get swallowed up by what we feel resentful about all of these sorts of things are all in the book because i feel like it's we sort of have to be armed with as many tools as possible to confront this if we're all struggling with it. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, like you said, there's so much going on where people are struggling in these ways. And if we can help people find some intervention before it's a crisis, you know, Absolutely. that, that to me is like the biggest thing, because so many of the people that we see, you know, couples and individuals, they come in when it's gotten to the point that it's absolutely overwhelming and either their relationship is about to fall apart 
or their life feels like it's falling apart. And if somebody can hear you, if they can check out your book, if they can read it and find something that, you know, that, that connects with them and they can use as a tool to help them manage versus letting it come to a crisis, I mean, it's just, it's just so much easier, you know? It's, you know, e- even like what Tara was saying about like teaching somebody uh, a mindfulness practice when they're in treatment versus somebody picking up meditation or mindfulness practice when they're just like, kind of like, yeah, life is starting to feel really overwhelming. I want to do something slightly different. I want to support my well-being. Yeah, beautifully put. And I think that is the time to get into it for sure. Yeah. I'm still holding on to the words simplifying life. Oof. Just like that sounds really nice. Yeah, yeah. But I do, I like that idea that just like 10 minutes a day, just it's just simple. You're just there with yourself and your breath, trying to kind of just be present with yourself. And it's 10 minutes a day, you know? Yeah. And if you can't be present with yourself, like what are the chances exactly. you're going to be able to be present with your partner? And, and I think or that's Or your what, kids, yeah. That's that's the big complaint we hear so much from couples where they're just like, I'm just disconnected from one another. I guess so maybe that's like, can yeah. we end with, again, coming back to what we do here with couples? Like, how do you think a mindfulness practice can help a couple in having the relationship they want to have? Yeah. I mean, I think if we go back to that previous definition of mindfulness, where we are present to what's currently occurring without judgment, it seems like a a far-fetched idea, but very possible for us to be with another human being and to be there 100% for them, to be curious about who they are in this moment, as Mm. opposed to who we think they are, what they have done in the past, to actually not cling to our expectations of what they're going to do next, but to, again, be fully present for who they are in this moment. And I'll add those last two words in, without judgment. And that's so hard because Mm -hmm. it's so easy for us to say, but, you know, you always do this or you never do that. And that's where we get stuck. So to actually learn to be 100% present with another person, to see them for who they are in this moment is invaluable. I think no one listening to this thinks that they are the same person they were three, five, eight years ago, that we are constantly changing. We have this constant evolution of everything we've listened to and our wisdom and our knowledge and our new experiences. And yet we don't often afford the same level of grace and understanding to the person that we've spent those years with. We think of them as that person Mm -hmm. that we've known for those years and forget they have gone through just as many, if not more changes. So to be 100% with the person that we are currently in front of, as opposed to our idea of them, is the gift of mindfulness. That is amazing, yeah. I mean, everything you just said is like, yeah. you, you want to come be a marriage counselor here with us, yeah. Gojo? <laughs> I was going to say too, and helping couples understand that it's not about, because I think people are like, oh, if I'm just like accepting of this, or they feel like there's this surrender. It's like, it, it's not about that. It's about being in each other's presence with unconditional positive regard. It's not about like winning or losing and just like really helping kind of bring down that ego defense system. And yeah, yeah. everything you said there, like I I completely related to so much of what I find myself, if I'm not careful, is I'm I'm focusing on things Tara has done maybe that, that, you know, in the past or I'm being critical or I'm worried about the love I'm going to receive in the future. And there's been a few times in these last couple months where I was able to really be just present with her in a moment. I was like, I love this person. I mean, I am 
there was a moment this summer, I remember where I just looked at her and it was like, I just like, I am smitten, you know, with this person. And I spend so much time not be not like looking at her. And I was just like looking at her and just being like, this is the person I love. And just for an instant, I was able to let go of, of, of the past because we all have our struggles with our partners. I was able to let go of the future of like my fears and is this going to happen and am I going to be enough? And, and it was just like, God, I just love this person. And it was, it's just an amazing feeling to be able to reconnect with that. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. That is. So, well, how, yeah. where do we find books? Yeah, tell. I mean, I really g- want give to us, order this give, one. Give, give us just a, you know, kind of a breakdown, Lodra, of, of like your latest book again. Like, how can people connect with you, learn more about about you and your ideas and the books? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty easy to find me. Uh, so, <laughs> the book is where books are sold these days. It's called "Take Back Your Mind: Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times." And people can certainly reach out to me through my website, which is lodvarinsler.com or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter at lodvarinsler. I mean, I'm at the, for anyone who's like looking at the, you know, their screen and says, how do you spell that? It's like right there. And you just put a .com or an <laughs> at in front of it or whatever. You'll be able to find me, I'm sure. But I'm always happy to, anyone who, who reaches out to me, for example, through my website, you know, I'm always the person that gets back. There's no secret team in the background answering my emails when it's me. <laughs> Um, so I'm always happy to be in, in dialogue with people. Great. Well, hey, thank you so much for jumping on this morning and, and sharing, you know, sharing of yourself. And uh, like we said, it's it's a huge tool that we know couples benefit from. So so we hope they check you out and, and use use some of the tools that you're offering them. Yeah, and just thank you for for doing what you do. It's it's inspiring, absolutely inspiring. Thank you both for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I could be here all day with you, Lodra. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And as always, we want to just uh, tell people you guys can find us on uh, Instagram at relationship underscore renovation. Uh, our Facebook is at He Said, She Said Counseling. And our website, www.hesaidshesaidcounseling.com. You know, we really want to ask if you if you do enjoy our show, if you get a lot out of it, if you and your partner enjoy listening to it together, you apply the ideas that we're, uh, that we're bringing to you, please just share with a friend, you know, tell them about our podcast. It's just how we, we get our ideas out there. And we, you know, we, we are passionate about about helping people be happier together, about helping people, you know, become their best selves together. So, uh, absolutely. As always, I always say, take care of yourself, take care of each other. (laughs) Yeah. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Me and you just singing on the train, me and you listening to the rain, me and you, we are the Are we?